The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Joel. And tonight we are doing an overview of this prophecy of Joel. Admittedly, this will be more teaching than, than preaching, but I really want you to understand this book and understand the message because it's a timely message, it's an important message, and it's a message that even looks forward to the future that is to come. So it's exciting, and it has important spiritual principles that we need to learn and apply in our own lives. So uh, real quick, um, my outline is really simple. Who was Joel first? What events led to Joel's prophecy second? And then third, what is Joel's message? So that's the, the outline. So first, who was Joel? If you look at verse 1 of, of the book, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. So we don't really know who, who uh, Pethuel is, uh, other than that he's mentioned here. Joel's name means, you could pronounce it Joel. It means that Yahweh is Lord. Yahweh is God. So it's a, it's a name that, that brings us right front and center with God himself, that, that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is indeed the God. And we're told also that the word of the Lord uh, came to Joel. That's an important statement because it denotes that Joel is a prophet, a prophet. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would come upon the, the prophet Sometimes in a dream, sometimes in a vision, sometimes in um, high inspiration, and the Holy Spirit would impart to the prophet the message that they were to give to God's people. And the prophet, were, the prophet was only to speak God's word, only to speak God's word. If the prophet lied, or made a mistake, guess what? He's not a true prophet. He's not a true prophet. All these people today say, oh, so-and-so is a prophet sometimes, right? No, a prophet speaks the word of God. And that's why he says the word of the Lord. It's not, it's not Joel's word. It's, it's the word of the Lord that came to Joel. So dating this book and dating when he lived is very challenging. And I read commentary after commentary this week, and, and people debated whether he was in the 5th century or even as late as the 9th century. The, the majority of, of scholars that I read thought that he was in the 9th century, 9th century so about 800 B.C., 
uh, his, the, the reason for that is that his vocabulary, his style is very similar to the prophet Amos. And so we're thinking 800 BC, you, you think about the, the chronology, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, what year were they carried off into captivity with Assyria? Do you remember that? 722. So northern kingdom, 10 tribes, they go off into captivity, 722. Uh, Judah, Benjamin, the southern tribes, they're carried off into captivity in Babel, to Babylon in 586 BC. So if you can kind of remember those dates, those are helpful dates in, in kind of dating what is going on in Israel's history. So we're looking at, he's prophesying before these events even take place. So he's uh, speaking about, I think, some of these events that will occur. Okay, so that's the first that the first point in the outline, who was Joel? Second, what events led to Joel's prophecy? Sometimes, normally, when God gives a prophecy to somebody, there's a reason why God is speaking, because there's some event that has happened that God is going to speak to, speak to through the prophetic word, whether it's because Israel is in sin and the prophet needs to confront it, or whether there's a message that needs to be known for something that's going to take place in the future, God will speak on the occasion of an event. In this case, there was a massive natural disaster. Um, it was a judgment of God that God sent on the nation of Israel in the form of a locust, a, a cataclysmic locust invasion. So you can read about this in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locusts has eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locusts has eaten. And what the hopping locusts left, the destroying locusts has eaten. So it's giving this picture of these waves of locusts. These, I don't think these are different types of locusts. It's just saying, you know, the first round of locusts came. Seems like they ate almost everything. But what they didn't eat, the next round of locusts ate. And then what little was left after the second round of locusts, the third round of locusts decimated. So the locusts have come, they've destroyed everything. And in that day and age, they were an agricultural economy. They depended upon everything in terms of what was produced from the land. So you can imagine how devastating this would have been for the people. Um, you think about our country in our nation's history. I think the only real uh, possible coinciding event would be the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression in the, the 1920s and the 1930s, where you had all of this land just in upheaval and, and, and basically the topsoil of, of Oklahoma and, and Kansas being, being blown away and, and people starving and, and trying to make ends meet and, and, and moving from the land. So think that type of, of devastation. And uh, here's the effects, verse 5. Uh, he says, awake, you drunkards, and weep. In other words, he's like, wake up, you drunkards. You don't have any more alcohol left to drink. Well, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. There's no more. For a nation has come up against my land. The nation is the nation of locusts. 
powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it is the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine, and it has splintered my fig tree. So you think about uh, wine, and you think about all the agricultural products, the fig trees, all the other types of grains that you can think of, uh, the locusts have decimated them. He says, if you look at verse 7, it has stripped off the bark of the trees. It's even just decimated the trees. Their branches are made white. He says, verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Uh, Moreover, because of this, uh, at the temple, the priest would give um, a new wine offering. They would give grain offerings. And so now the priests aren't even, there's not even enough materials for the priest to carry on the sacrifices at the temple. So, there, so that's the degree of the decimation that's been experienced. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord, the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil languishes. And then he says, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. So it's basically a massive, massive depression that has resulted from this really apocalyptic locust attack. So it's in this situation that God calls this prophet to speak his word of prophecy. So what's his message? So here's the third point. What's Joel's message? And we're going to break Joel's message down into five things. And if you want to sum up what Joel's message is, what these five things really are all about, and they're all really a separate facet of this one thing, it's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That phrase, the day of the Lord, speaks to a period in time when God shows up. It speaks to a period in history when God shows up, both in mercy and in judgment. It's a day of visitation of the Lord. And what you see in history is that there is a final day of the Lord. There's a ultimate day of the Lord when Jesus Christ will come back riding on a white steed to judge the living and the dead and and all of that, and we're going to talk about that. But along the way, there are other days of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of visitation, of mercy and judgment, and that happens throughout Israel's history. There's days of the Lord. When Christ comes, and we're going to see Pentecost, day of the Lord, 70 A.D., when Jerusalem is destroyed by the emperor Titus, day of the Lord. There's days of judgment and then the ultimate day of the Lord. All right, so here's the first part of the message. In the face of God's judgment, repentance is required. Repentance is required in the face of God's judgment. If you want to be excluded from the judgment of God, and this is true in the day of Joel, and this is true today, you must repent. Look at verse 13. 
He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Well, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. He says, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And look at this, and cry out to the Lord. Because he says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So what he's saying is, is you better repent. You better repent because the day of the Lord is near. What he's saying is, is, is this whole locust thing that has decimated you, it was just a warning. It was just a warning. It was God's wake-up call for you to repent, for you to repent, to call an assembly, and to, to plead with God that, that he would spare them. Um, repentance is necessary, he says, because the day of the Lord is near. Um, that's what's required today, by the way, is that we need to repent before God and come together and plead with God that God would have mercy on us, that God would have mercy on our nation. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think was more evil, Israel of that day or America of this day? <laughs> I mean, if you don't think judgment is coming on this country, I don't think you've read your Bible. Everybody sobered up after 9-11. The church is filled up. I remember. I remember and said, we need to return to God. And three, three months later, the, the churches were empty again. People said, yeah, our military will take care of it. We need to repent before the living God, come before him, plead for mercy, and, and make sure as much as it depends upon us that we are walking, that we are walking steadfastly, that we are, are holy and set apart to the Lord, uh, that we are walking as the people of God. So repentance is important and repentance is necessary and, and you can keep reading uh, what this repentance looks like through the end of chapter one. So that's the, that's the first part of Joel's message, is that repentance is necessary. And by the way, whenever there is true revival, there's always repentance. There's always repentance. There's always a, a realization of what your sin really is before God. And, and that's why people throw out the, the, the verbiage of revival, right? We've seen this at Asbury. Well, maybe it was. I, don't, I wasn't there. I don't know. But when there is true repentance, people are turning from their sin. That's literally what the word means. It means a change of mind about your sin and about who you are before God. It's, a, it's the picture of a boat going one way and then the captain saying, we got to go the opposite way. It's a 180 degree turn. That's the picture of repentance. So, that's what is necessary 
today for the church and for our nation. Second, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. You might think that you get away with your sin for a while. A nation might think that it gets away with its sin for a while. But the day of judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is near. Now, in this particular part of Joel, chapter 2, what day of the Lord is he talking about? What day of judgment is he talking about? Most commentators think that he's talking about the, the Babylonian captivity, when the army of Babylon shows up and lays waste to Jerusalem, and you remember carries the captives, Daniel and all those guys, into captivity. Um, but there's also a sense where this is a picture, this is a type of the day of the Lord that's at the very end of history. But I think what he's specifically addressing first is this coming army of the north. He uh, mentions an army of the north um, later on in, in chapter 2. So that's what I think he's talking about. I think he's talking about either the Assyrian or Babylonian army. But look what he says, chapter 2, about the day of the Lord. Again, this is the day of the Lord's visitation. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. So Zion is what? Jerusalem. He's saying, look, the, the city of Jerusalem has walls, and if you ever uh, go to Israel, they have those, those horns. They're called a shofar. You know what I'm talking about? Those, those big horns. I'd like to see Kenny blow. You probably have one of these, don't you? you <laughs> um, it's one of those big horns, and, and what they would do is they would blow the horn. The watchman on the wall would blow the horn if there was, a, if there was an army approaching or if there was a time that was needed for people to assemble at the temple. So Joel says, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Um, look at this next verse, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. That's the same language that's used to describe God on Mount Sinai. When the Lord was on Mount Sinai, you remember Moses went up and all the elders were around the mountain? It described that there was fire on the mountain, but there was also darkness and gloom. And in this way, it represents the presence of God. So what's happening is, is this is a judgment from God, a day of darkness and gloom where God is bringing his presence in judgment like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. So um, there's debate in, uh, amongst um, scholars whether chapter 2 is about another locust invasion that's coming or another army that's coming. And I think it's clear because he specifically references an army at the end of the chapter that he's describing an army, but he's using some of the same language that he used earlier to describe the locusts, okay? So an army is approaching, and this army is sent by God. This army is raised up for judgment upon Israel. Look at verse 3. He says, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. So they're, they're ravaging the land as they move through. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. 
As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Israel was never a chariot army. Uh, Israel was known for, fly, for, for fighting in, in mountainous terrain, in, in valleys, and on hills. If, if Israel fought in the plains, a large army, they normally didn't do very well because um, normally foot soldiers don't fare very well versus heavy cavalry and chariots. Um, anyway, I'm not going to go on that digression, but I could. Um, so, the army is approaching from the north. Um, chariots, they're, they're coming over the hills. And verse 6, it says, Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like sol- soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. So this army is, is well-trained. They they. They march in a certain way, they have horses, they have chariots, and this army is coming with God's intention, God's purpose. Look at this, verse, uh, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So it's interesting because this army, if let's say it's the Assyrians or the Babylonians, this is a pagan, pagan nation. These people are not God-fearers, but yet they're God's army in the sense that God has raised them up for judgment, that God has raised them up to bring his discipline on Israel. So that's the... Um, that's the, the coming day of the Lord. And in, in the midst of this, again, he says, but you can escape this if you repent. So this is verses uh, 12 to 17. Look at verse 12. God says, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, weeping, and with mourning. By the way, that's what, really what repentance looks like. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He's talking about mourning over your sin. Uh, Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So God says, uh, this locust attack was a warning that there is a coming day of judgment. I am sending an army to take you out, but if you return to me, it'll be averted. That's what he's saying. Now question, did Israel turn or not? They did not, because we know what happens, right? But they were, they were both taken into captivity. But God says, look, return to me. Um, come together. And, and this is verse 16. He says, gather the people consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children even, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her chamber. In other words, go get that couple off their honeymoon and bring them here. Bring everybody here. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage reproach. They're saying, come to me, repent, repent, and then, look, the Lord will relent. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people that God will be merciful to you 
And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner, that northern army that that I'm sending to attack you. He says, I will remove that northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. Uh, The eastern sea is the Dead Sea. The western sea is the Mediterranean Sea. He says, I'll get rid of him. I'll, I'll completely annihilate this army. So you see this? The army that was sent by the Lord in... Uh, the beginning of chapter 2, is now the army that's being rid of if they will repent, if they will return to God and seek Him. So, third, what we see here in this, I think, is something really important about the character of God. And this is the third point of Joel's message, is that God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God. God, that God is jealous for his people. That's verse 18, that the Lord became jealous for his land, had pity on his people. Pity is this, basically the same thing as mercy. It's mercy on God, that God has pity on you despite your sin, despite the way that you've rebelled. God has pity and, and mercy on his people. Do you remember when uh, God speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34? God says his name, and he says, I am the Lord. I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger, having steadfast love to generation after generation. Psalm 86, 15, the psalmist says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 111.4 says, He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So the Lord loves to show mercy on undeserving sinners. Uh, Paul says in Romans 9, God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. You ever, so you start playing this game. Who deserves the mercy of God? Answer, nobody nobody. God says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. In other words, you don't deserve it. Israel didn't deserve it. Uh, Abraham did not deserve to be called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He was a star worshiper, and God had mercy on him and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Paul did not deserve mercy. He was a violent and insolent opponent of the church. Yet Paul said, I have this ministry, 2 Corinthians 4, by the mercies of God. So it's mercy when God pities you in your estate and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue you, I'm going to help you, and I'm going to bless you. And that's the, that is the message of Christianity. It's not you being good enough to pull yourself up so that God approves of you. It's God reaching down and having mercy on you despite your pitiful estate. That's an important word to remember, pitiful. Verse 18, God had pity on his people. Um, Verse 24, look at verse 24 of, of Joel 2. God says that the threshing force will be full of grain again, the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I love this verse, people often quote this verse is why I wanted to read it 
He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. So sometimes you think, man, I've been so set back. I'm so far behind. Uh, this devastated me. This, this trial uh, has hurt me so much. We've sacrificed so much. But yet God in a moment is able to restore what was taken away. Just like Job. You remember Job had everything taken away. And God restores everything tenfold. Uh, with God, all things are possible. All things are possible with him. Uh, that's what the angel told Mary. All things are possible with God. Uh, never doubt the Lord's kindness. When you're in the trial, it's, it seems hard. You, you've been set back. But God, if you are his child, you can bank on the fact that God will restore. And in the end, God is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory, an unfading crown of righteousness that he will award to you on the last day. God knows your pain. God knows your struggles. God knows your trials. And God will restore everything. When you are suffering for Christ, when you, when you are being persecuted, what does Jesus say? You will be rewarded. God will restore. God will reward you for everything that you suffer in this life for Christ. So he restores to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. That's the end game. That's the end game, is that based on the righteousness of Christ and his shed blood, we will never, ever be put to shame. Um, in the day of judgment, the, uh, the wicked will not stand in the congregation of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish, and the righteous will not be put to shame. So that's the, the mercy that... God shows. So let me just give you the, the first three parts of his message is that repentance is required in the face of God's judgment. Second, that the day of the Lord is coming. Third, that Yahweh is a merciful God. And then four, four, the Holy Spirit blessing points forward to heaven. This is, again, part of the day of the Lord. This is a facet of the Lord's visitation that Joel prophesies about. Uh, Joel sometimes is called the prophet of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. So what he's describing, real quickly, this is a contrast. This is a, a, a contrast with what was experienced in Israel's history in Numbers chapter 11. You don't need to turn there, but let me read this to you. This is Numbers uh, chapter 11. This is when Moses 
is in the wilderness and he's trying to judge everyone and God raises up the 70 elders to help judge Israel with him. In verse 24, it says, So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So um, Joshua gets upset about this, that, that, that people are, are prophesying in the camp. Um, Moses says to him in verse 29, are you jealous for my sake? And then he says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel return to the camp. So Joel prophesies a day when all the Lord's people will have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All of the people, not just the elders. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the anointing of the Spirit was reserved specifically for the leaders of Israel, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, and in this case, the elders. Not everybody had the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, everybody was regenerated by the Holy Spirit, but not everybody was anointed by the Spirit. And even David was afraid of the anointing being taken away. Remember, he prayed, Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So the anointing was contingent in the Old Testament upon your position. But Joel is prophesying this day in the future where the Holy Spirit will be anointed on all types of people. Look at the, look at the prophecy. Uh, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all, on all types of people, not just the leaders, your sons, your daughters, your old men, your young men, even on male and female servants. So all types of people, the Holy Spirit is going to anoint. Now, obviously, um, well, let me, let me finish what he says here. Verse 30, he says, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Where's that quoted? Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. All right, so if you turn forward, and I do want you to turn with me this time to Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. People are wondering why the Holy Spirit has has come, and people have, have spoken in tongues, and, and people are um, hearing the message in their own language, and people are, verse 7, it says they're amazed, they're astonished, how is this happening, what is taking place? Some people say, oh, well, they're just drunk, they're just spouting off nonsense because They've uh, been intoxicated. They're filled with new wine. Look at verse 14. 
But Peter, standing with the eleven, filled up his voice and addressed them. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Um, that would be, I think, 6 a.m., the third hour. So that would be pretty bad to be drunk at 6 a.m. Uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's saying this is the fulfillment of what Joel prophesied all, you know, eight, 800 years before. He says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Uh, tongues is a form of prophecy. Uh, that's why I don't think people are speaking in tongues today, because the gifts of prophecy and the gifts of revelation have ceased. If somebody spoke in a tongue, it was a word from God. It was revelation from God. That's why Paul said it had to be interpreted. If somebody's speaking a glossia, you better write it down and interpret it because it's a word from the Lord. So tongues are basically equated with a prophetic revelation from God. That's my, that's my point in saying that. Um, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I want to come back to that language right there uh, because I'm going to explain how this prophecy is being fulfilled even today. But before I do that, I want to just show you how... Pentecost flushes out in the book of Acts. So here, who is anointed by the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem? The Jew. These, these are Jews. It's the disciples and those that are uh, in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, right? So then move forward to Acts chapter 8, verse 15. Acts chapter 8, verse 15. Let me start in verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. But they, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. Not just the Jew, not just those who were in Jerusalem. The Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. Before I get too far, do you remember what the promise was that Jesus made to the disciples? He said, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria into the ends of the earth. Um, then in Acts chapter 10, go over to Acts chapter 10. There was a group of people 
uh, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, called God-fearers. A God-fearer was a Gentile who adopted Judaism. Uh, a God-fearer was somebody who wasn't ethnically a Jew, but lived like a Jew. And this man, Cornelius, who was a centurion, had, assim- had essentially become a, a, a Gentile God-fearer. He had, ad- he had adopted Judaism and, and begun to worship Yahweh as a, as a God-fearer, as a... Um, um, yeah, as a, as a Gentile God-fearer. So here's the, the message coming to him, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So they're Gentiles, but they're Gentile God-fearers. They're not just outright pagans. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues. Remember, speaking in tongues is prophecy and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain in some days. And then... Lastly is Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, verse 6. This is finally when outright Gentiles, those would be people like us, uh, are baptized in the Holy Spirit. I'll pick it up in um, verse 2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-oh. And he said, into then what were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So the Holy Spirit comes on the Jew, the Samaritan, the Gentile God-fearers, and then the outright Gentiles, the outright Greeks. So Paul understands that the nations essentially are being being brought into the covenant of God, that the nations are being brought into this prophecy that Peter says is fulfilled that Joel made. Paul says this, Galatians 3.28, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. Notice that same language in the prophecy that, that um, Peter is quoting. There is no male and female, for they are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So the signs of prophecy in tongues are given to all people in these last days. Um, Here's what's really interesting. Here's what I think is really interesting. Um, The prophets, when they prophesied about this event of the Holy Spirit, And when the disciples and even John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit coming, they linked it with the final judgment. 
They said that, that when the Holy Spirit comes down and anoints people, look out for the final judgment. These events are connected. These events are related. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, the last days begin before the final judgment. Uh, do you remember when, when John the Baptist saw Jesus? He said, there is the one who will what? Baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He has his winnowing fork in his hand. So they understood the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think this is just fascinating to inaugurate the last days where the Holy Spirit is basically the down payment on the future. That as sure as the Holy Spirit has come, the final day of God's visitation and judgment will come as well. So what you see is this. Uh, turn back to Acts chapter 2. This is, this is what Peter is saying here in Acts chapter 2. This is why he quotes all of the prophecy that Joel makes. Because Joel makes this prophecy about the, the, uh, the Holy Spirit coming down. And then at the end of the prophecy is this language about essentially the earth um, coming to its final conclusion. Uh, he, he says, there's going to be wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse says that those events happen when he returns. That's, that's it. That's like the day of curtains right there. So what, what Peter is saying here is that day, it's like already begun. When you read Peter's epistles, what he says is, we're in the last days. We're here. Like the day of judgment's right around the corner. Um, let, let me just give you a, a couple quotes on that. First uh, Peter 1.20 he says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you. Second Peter 3.3, 3, he says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the, first, in the last day with scoffing, uh, following their own sinful desire. So, so Peter understood that since the Holy Spirit came, looking at Joel's prophecy, that now we are in the last days, moving forward to this final day of judgment. So let me just read you a quote. This is from one of my Hebrew professors and Old Testament professors that I had in seminary. Um, this, here's the quote. I think it's helpful in understanding what Peter is saying Joel's prophecy means. He says, Peter's point was not that every detail of Joel 2, verses 28 to 32, came to pass on the day of Pentecost, but that Pentecost marks the beginning of the messianic era of which Joel spoke. As far as the early Christians were concerned, the pouring out of the Spirit established that the end of the ages had come. This is it. We are in the last days now. If the Spirit had come down, it was only a matter of time before the fire would come down too. The fact that neither Joel nor Peter knew how much time might elapse between the pouring out of the Spirit and the final judgment is irrelevant. The important point 
is that the gift of the Spirit inaugurated the end of the age, the messianic era, end quote. So the sequence of events that, bring, that will bring about the final day of the Lord are already in motion. They're already in motion. Our world is going on just like nothing has happened. That Jesus, the cross, and everything is completely irrelevant. And Peter's saying, uh 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 uh. The, the wheels are in motion for this final day of the Lord already, and we know it because of the giving of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's fourth part of his message. And fifth and finally is that God's final judgment will be great. God's final judgment will be great. There will be a day of final judgment. Um, look at chapter 3. Go back to, to Joel. Joel chapter three. He says, For behold, in those days and at that time, this is the this is the far reaching future. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations. So basically all the pagans. He says, I will gather all the pagans and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means uh, judgment. I will bring them into the valley of judgment, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. So they just treat God's people flippantly. You trade a boy for a night with a prostitute and sell a girl for a glass of wine. Um, so he takes this example of Tyre and Sidon, which were part of Phoenicia on the, uh, the coast of the Mediterranean, which uh, these, these uh, cities in Phoenicia and Philistia, the Philistines, these were probably major enemies of Israel in the 8th century. But these are just examples. The, look at these. These are archetypes of people that oppose God. So in the last day, we're not looking for a resurrected Tyre and Sidon in a, in a resurrected Philistia. These are examples of people that oppose God. The pagans that oppose God will be judged. That's what Joel's saying. He says um, basically that God will treat them lightly, that what they've done will happen to them. Um, he says, verse 7, Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Um, then he says this. This is, this, is the final, this is the final battle. This is, and it really doesn't even appear a battle. It's more just a bloodshed. But it says, proclaim this among the nations. God is basically taunting those who, who persecute his people. He says, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. God, God's, uh, listen to this language. Let all the men, let all the men who oppose God draw near. Let them come up 
And then he says this, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Later, Isaiah is going to take that same statement and flip it. He's going to say, take your swords and make them into plowshares and into pruning hooks. He gets this from Joel. Joel says in the last day, he says, take your plowshares and make them into swords, make them into weapons. So it's the opposite of what Isaiah is going to later say. I thought, that's, I thought that was interesting. Um, and then he says, let the weak, let the weak guy say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come. God's saying, you come. You bring everybody. Come one, come all. All you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors. Let the nations stir themselves up, and you come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. And he says, I will put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. And in this day of judgment, in this day of judgment, uh, verse 14, it's described as a mob a mob of people, multitudes and multitudes, are in this valley of decision. It's called the valley of decision. Not that you get to make a decision or anybody else gets to make a decision, but that the Lord makes a decision. And you remember, Christ is the agent of judgment. On the last day, everybody will stand before Christ, and Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And it's Christ's decision. Go read Matthew 25. He will put the sheep on the right the goats on the left, and he will say to the goats, depart from me into everlasting punishment. So that is what is going to happen in the future. And Joel prophesies it. Jesus prophesies it. John prophesies it in the book of Revelation. This is going to happen. As sure as today is Sunday, there will be this final day of judgment where God will reign supreme. Um, verse 20, Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. So this is, I think, the new heavens, the new earth, the final end of, of everything where God will vindicate his people. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion and we will be forever with God. So that's Joel's message, the day of the Lord. And it's really fascinating, I think, how all of these are parts of the facet of the day of the Lord, that God will judge, but God is a merciful judge if we will repent, if we will re repent and come to him. And we know that these things are certain because we ourselves have experienced the Holy Spirit, that he is anointed to us, and the Holy Spirit is the down payment on that final ultimate consummation in the day of the Lord when he will judge the living and the dead. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.